So good to see you guys. It's great to be back. I'm, I'm, uh, I was gone a Sunday, and absence makes the heart grow fonder. I'm, I'm really, really, it was a blessing to me. Worship was such a blessing, and just being here with you guys was such a blessing. I brought a little kawaii back with me so that you guys could continue while I'm preaching to feel sorry for me that I had to spend the last week in Kauai. There's a lot going on in the world, huh? Israel's in a war and all kinds of stuff are going on. Just such a, a disturbing thing. And as Daryl prayed, and I want to just remind us that there's a spiritual root to this thing. This is an ancient battle that, that is, that's going on that is playing out in front of us, one that very much the Bible talks about and, and, and describes and, and uses as a marker. Uh, Israel really becomes kind of a timepiece in, uh, in, in, in God's uh, uh, prophetic time clockwork kind of a thing. So, so we want to continue. We wanna, I want to just keep us mindful to be praying for the peace of Israel. Um, it's, a, it's just such an interesting thing. I, I, mean, I don't know if, you, if we really think about this for so much, but, but Israel's not that big a place. It's a, it's a pretty small place with just literally, I don't know, seven, eight million people, something like that. I don't know what the population of Israel is, but it's, it's not massive. Um, and, and, and the eyes of the world are once again focused on this place that God has been focusing on for a long time. And why is it that, that for all of history that people have tried to eradicate the people of the Jews, the Jewish people? Uh, God's chosen people, and I believe that it's a truth. I believe it's a pointer towards the truth of Scripture that, that if there is uh, God and God has a plan... And that there's an enemy to that plan, well, wouldn't God's enemy uh, be uh, sold out on trying to take out God's chosen people? I believe, I believe that because God has made promises to the Jewish people that he will fulfill in the end, that the enemy is determined that if he could just eradicate them off the face of the earth, that those promises couldn't be fulfilled. Um, that's just kind of conjecture on my point, but, but, but it's very interesting. I mean, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Assyrians... Uh, the Egyptians, the, uh, Adolf Hitler, there is anti-Semitism and a huge rise in anti-Semitism in our world today. It, there, there's very much a demonic attack, and I, I'm going to say no less than an absolute demonic attack that is going on, not just against the people of Israel, but the people of God. The institutions that God has set forth and what God is doing in the world, there is an absolute attack on these things that are foundational and core in, uh, in both our nation and in the world that we live in right now. And all the more reminder for us as believers to be mindful of, of what we're talking about. And as we talk about today, I think nothing could be much more fitting than to begin to talk about this idea of building and building this wall, this, wall, this defensive mechanism. Because um, as the church goes, so goes the culture and the society around us. I'll remind us that, that our nation, although it was never a Christian nation, it was founded upon the principles of Judeo-Christian belief. And because of that, we prospered. And not only did we prosper, but we have helped the world to prosper on so many different levels. And as, as, as the church and this nation has begun to move away from God, we are witnessing right now the decline of our civilization the decline of America, and the, the uprising of what is evil and, and just not good in the world today. It's, it's, and there is an absolute spiritual correlation. You cannot separate the physical from the spiritual in this world. They go tied uh, very much together. So I want to just keep us mindful 
that this is important, you know. As we talk about Nehemiah 3, we're not really talking about just building some old wall in Jerusalem, right? We are talking about core uh, spiritual concepts for our own lives and where we're at and for the church. And it's a reminder uh, for us that we need to be building. Uh, Home Point Center, there are some new pointers out there, some, some ideas for, uh, for doing some discipleship stuff with your kids. Stop by and grab one of those if you've got some kids and you're interested in some ideas of, of what could we do uh, together in this season here uh, to help to uh, grow our kids spiritually. So, Nehemiah chapter 3. Um, just a little backtrack. Nehemiah chapter 2 is, is an interesting thing. It's... it's uh, Artaxerxes writing this, uh, giving this, uh, this decree to go out and rebuild Jerusalem, which is a whole nother sermon in itself that we don't have time for. But, but that itself initiates a prophetic cl- uh, a clock in which uh, the people, the Jewish people would have understand very much, very well, the time frame in which the Messiah was going to be coming into Jerusalem. So when Jesus does his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, it actually lines perfectly with a prophetic time clock that began with the order to go out and to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. So anyway, uh, that, that aside, God is always multitasking. He's always doing more things than what we recognize or understand. But this is about when the enemy has come in and the enemy has destroyed the walls and, and, and tore those kinds of things down. And I don't know about you or where you sit here this morning, but, but I just know in my own life that, that I've seen this. I've seen the devastation. I've had the enemy come in and destroy the walls of my life, destroy the very character and the morals and all of the things that, that, that would be the thing that would keep him out and the defensive out. Many times it was me who unlocked the gate and let him in, but nonetheless, he did what he does. He came in and he steals, he kills, and he destroys. John 10.10, 10, this is the work of the enemy in our lives. He always steals, he always kills, and he always destroys. And that takes on a, a multifaceted different kinds of ways and, and means of doing that in our lives. Many times we ourselves are participating in that and we're allowing the enemy and we've unlocked the gates. But whenever we unlock any of those gates, when he breaches that defensive barrier that you and I have been given by God, always going to come and he's going to tear all the walls down. It's just his nature. It's who he is. He's come to kill and to destroy. And God has come that we might have life, and not just have life, but have life in abundance, it says. So I'm going to try to get through. Let me read through uh, Nehemiah chapter 3. If you want to join me, you can open up a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the chair in front of you. You can turn your Bible on, grab your uh, Bible app, whatever that looks like. Nehemiah chapter 3. See if I can get through all of these uh, Hebrew names and stuff. All right. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hanel, or Hananel, and next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zakur, the son of Imri, built. 
The sons of Hesaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Jehoiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besedeah, repaired the gates of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jaden, the Maranathite. The men of Gibeon and, the, and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor, the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Herahiah, the goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem repaired. Next to them, Jedidiah, the son of Haramph, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashbaneah, repaired. Malkijah, the son of Haram, and Hasab, the son of Pahathamohab, repaired another section. And the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Helohish, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Melchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth-Hakerim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kalohoza, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the foundation gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah, the king of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired. Rechem, the son of Benai, next to Hashabiah, the ruler of half the district of Keilah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Baviah, the son of Hinnadad, ruler of half the district of Keilah, next to him, Ezer, the son of Yeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabiah, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashab, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashab to the end of the house of Eliashab. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hasab repaired opposite their house. After him, Azariah, the son of Messiah, the son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Hinadadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner 
Palau, the son of Uzziah, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Parosh, and the temple servants living in Ophel repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shekaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Melchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. And aren't you glad that you didn't have to try to read all of those Hebrew names and weird stuff like that, right? It's a nightmare. Oh, my gosh. So, you say, we look at that, and we're like, okay, <laughs> right? Okay, but there's a lot of stuff that's going on in here, a lot of things that we want to look at real quick. For one thing, there's no gap that can be left. When we start talking about building a wall, and if there's going to be a fortification in our lives, you can't leave a gap somewhere. When you go to put the armor of God on, you can't leave off some stuff. We've got to put the whole thing. We've got to be a people who are, who are looking at wholeness. Again, like we've talked before, the idea of peace, shalom, in the Hebrew language, was, it, was a, it, was a, it was a wholeness. It was a completeness. It wasn't just the absence of conflict. It, it, it was having kind of a wholeness and a completeness in our lives and a balance within our lives. So when we start talking about building walls and building walls spiritually um, in our community and in our homes and in our lives can't leave a gap. You leave a gap, you leave, you leave the enemy the opportunity. If the enemy uh, infiltrates into this, he's always going to do the same thing. He's going to steal, he's going to kill, and he's going to destroy. He's going to tear down the walls. One thing we see in here, too, is this is a team effort. This is a team effort. Everybody's building. All kinds of folks are out here, and they are building, and there is a diversity of the people that are building. Looks a lot like the church is supposed to look. You see, the church is never supposed to be run by one person or a staff of people. The church is a much bigger uh, thing. The, the church is all of the people bringing their giftings into the church and using their giftings and their talents to help to build, to fortify this thing. You, you see, you can, we can't be leaving the, the mission of the church. We can't be relegating that to just a few people. It's going to take all of us, if we're going to be a people who want to build a wall around the communities that we live in and around our families and around our homes, and again, this wall, it's not to keep people out. I mean, this is the purpose of the gates. The gates are there because they allow people in and out. The wall is there. You can't just build a wall because if you just build a wall, now you're stuck inside. 
You're just stuck inside, and then and it's not where we want to be. And too many churches just build a wall around themselves and try to live apart from the world, excluding the world, just saying, we'll build our safe little bubble in here, and the world and all of the weirdness of the world and all of that stuff won't be able to infiltrate or get in, but that has never, ever worked in the history of trying to do that. The church has tried to just say, well, that's the problems of the world, and, and, and so we'll just, we just won't follow that. We'll do something different. Well, we, 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 won't, we won't allow divorce or things like that to infiltrate our walls like the world does, but I'm just going to tell you that it has, right? And all of the problems that exist within the world are, are going to infiltrate within those. If we just build a wall around, it's going to come over the wall. See, we're meant to be a people who have this defensive thing when the enemy comes against us, but we're also meant to be a people who through those gates are going in and out, and we're affecting the world around us. We're in, in effect, we're, we're building a wall, not just around our homes and not just around our church, but around our community. And we would need to be a people who recognizes that God has called us to go out and to effect change in the world around you. This is what the call of the church is. And we meet here today as a reminder for those kinds of things so that when we leave here and we go out and we go into the world and whatever that looks like, whatever influences we have, whatever jobs we have, whatever relationships that we have, we're out and we're affecting those things for the kingdom of Christ. This is the call on the church. Everybody's building, and, and they're not just working in their giftings either. You got perfumers who are building. You got goldsmiths who are building. We've got priests who are building, right? We've got all Tekoites. We've got Gibeonites. We've got a, a, a wide range of people who are taking their efforts and concerning them so that they can have this walls built up around Jerusalem once again. When the church meets, it's an incredible amount of diversity that comes into this place. And, and that's on purpose. See, if we were just picking... We wouldn't pick this kind of diversity. We would just pick people that are more like us, right? Right? We would just want to hang out with people who are just like us. But God knows that we need the diversity of what everybody brings in here in order to really rightly function as the church, to move in the way that God has called us to, to, to move, and to set up the defenses against the enemy in our community in the ways that God has called us to. I think that sometimes we don't understand what a restrainer the church is and God's people are to the evil that is around the world. You remove that, and one day, you know, God is going to remove that. And when that's removed, the evil in the world is going to, it is going to go to an unprecedented level. So we're called to care for our community and to be helping our community to change, to seeing people come to know Jesus. And it's not just about working in our gifting. See, the goldsmith didn't just say, I don't mess with it. I mean, the only rock I mess with is a gold nugget. They're out in their building. The priests weren't excluded from that. They weren't up there just saying, well, this is, this is not a really a, a holy thing or something. No, it is a holy thing. See, too often we have got this divide between the sacred and the secular, and I'm going to say there is no divide between those things, that we're called to bring the sacred into the secular, not have a division between those two things. But sometimes we think, oh, well, that's a spiritual matter. That's, that's the job of the pastor or the elders or whatever that looks like. No, no, no. Every job, everything that we do, every interaction that we have 
is holy and is ordained by God. And we are meant to be a people who recognize that and who are moving in that. Rebuilding begins at home. You notice that some of these guys were building a cross from their home. And that's okay. Sometimes that's what we need to do. When the enemy has come in and he's, he's, he's infiltrated the walls of our home and, and tore down those, those things, sometimes the, the place that we need to start is right there. As a matter of fact, for one of the qualifications for leadership within the church is, is, a, is a family and a home life that's intact and that's basically doing okay. Not perfect. I mean, we, we, we can't put those kind of standards on one another. But, but it does mean that, that, that if your home isn't in order, that's where you need to start. In other words, what it says is that my first ministry isn't here. My first ministry is to my home. And if I don't do that well, then I don't have any job or any, uh, I, I can't be out here trying to do it here. So sometimes that begins at home. It begins at home. Recognizing that, that, that we need to be a people who are making sure that those, 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 uh, those gates are up at home. It was voluntary. Not everybody's getting paid to do this. It was a voluntary thing. Most of these people who are in here who are rebuilding on these walls, it was, it was volunteer. And that's really what it takes. And to be honest with you, that's what churches struggle the most with is getting people to step up and volunteer. It's one of the most frustrating things in ministry is trying to, to, to have the, the role of ministry fulfilled by the people of the church because this is how, again, the church is meant to operate. The church is meant to operate by the people fulfilling the needs of the church within the church, not us having to always uh, go out somewhere else and, and contract that or, or whatever or hire it and staff or those kinds of things. It was voluntary. The other thing I think that's interesting about this is that God keeps some records. Men are going to forget things, but God has not forgotten these people who were building on this wall. It was, it was written down. I, I imagine Nehemiah made laps around the wall looking at who was working and what was going on, and he recorded that. And God keeps some records. It's, it's an interesting thing. As a matter of fact, there's a book of life that you need to be in, right? The Lamb's book of life. That, that, that written in that book are the names of those who have trusted Jesus, those who have eternal life. We'll talk more about that here in just a second. But, but men forget, but God does not. He keeps records. He doesn't miss those things. When you're, when you're putting a, a little rock in the, in the wall and, and it seems like nobody notices or, or, or nobody would get it or, or it's, it's insignificant or it, it didn't really make a big difference, it did. See, because every piece and every part of this is making a difference in this wall. And as they build, every stone that goes on there makes a difference in this wall as it goes up. Don't short yourself in, in, in the calling and what God has for you and how your gifts can be used for his kingdom and for his glory. Because this is a God who not take, doesn't take the, the great and amazing things and, and, and the great big personalities and all. That's what people do, okay? And we get in a jam all the time. You look at the big pastors, you watch them fall off of their pedestals one after another. Why? Because we struggle in that area. We struggle with power. We struggle with influence. Those kinds of things. But God, God takes the, the base things of the world, it says, the simple things of the world, and he uses those things to confound the wise or the wisdom of the world. 
He, he takes the small things and he multiplies it. He takes five loaves and a couple of fish and feeds 5,000. He, he, he begins this whole movement that has changed, fundamentally changed the world around us. And he starts it in this little bitty place, this little bitty country by this little bitty Sea of Galilee. He begins this ministry, this small thing where he just gets a dozen, some followers and some people, and, and he doesn't make a big deal about himself, but God multiplies that, and it changes the world. Don't think that God can't take what you bring to him and multiply it into something that is beyond your ability to, to ever have conceived or understood what he was doing. So let's go through and let's look at these gates, because I think that these gates are kind of interesting. Can we get the up on what we've got? There we go. Okay, cool. So, so we start at the sheep gate here, and it's the priests who are working on the sheep gate. And, and the sheep gate is, a, is an interesting thing because the sheep gate is the only consecrated gate or the only gate that is consecrated as being a holy kind of a thing. And there are no bars or bolts on this gate. It's an interesting thing here. that The, the gates here, is, 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 this is also the place where the pool of Bethesda was at was inside of these gates. And this is the place where the sacrificial lambs would have went in as they went to the temple to be offered as sacrifices for the people. This is the gate where this is happening right here. And this is also the place where the people that were marginalized in the culture were just put off. They were put, they were, the, the, the pool of Bethesda was, was kind of more of a... Uh, more of a secular pagan kind of a thing than it was really a, 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 a Jewish, a Christian kind of a thing. But it was the place where, where, where all the misfits went. All the people that, that, that nobody wanted to deal with, that's the place where they went. When we were tired of dealing with you because your, your troubles were too much or too, too hard, and we, we couldn't figure out how to, what to do for you, and we, we prayed or whatever and things didn't change, they would just put people over here and say, hey, when the water turns up, maybe you can jump in there and... And maybe God will save you or change your life. This is the place where Jesus went. See, Jesus went to these places, and Jesus would have walked through this gate because he is the sacrifice. He is the one who was given. And what's really interesting about this, I think, is that, um, let's see. is that as Jesus uh, would have went into the, the sheep gate here, um, John 10, 7 to 9, says this. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door or the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. For the lambs that went through that gate, they had a one-way ticket. And their ticket was death and destruction. To, to pay for the penalty. But after Jesus, he, Jesus being this gate, he calls his sheep and his sheep go in and out of that gate. His sheep don't no longer have a one-way ticket to destruction. After Jesus comes and he goes through this gate, then, then his lambs are able to go in and out and to find pasture. 
This is where it begins, and it always begins here with the gospel. It begins with the gospel. And this sheep gate and these gates really represent kind of a journey, I think, in a believer's life. We're going to begin at the sheep gate, and this story is going to end again at the sheep gate because God is the beginning and he's the end. Jesus is the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end of this. And because he went through that, and because he was the sacrifice that paid the penalty for sin, that you and I, when we trust and we believe on that, then our sins are forgiven, and we're offered eternal life. And our destination is no longer a one-way ticket into destruction. We're free to come in and out and to be pastured by him. Um, and, and, and so this is where it begins. It begins with salvation. It begins with a relationship to Jesus. When we start talking about this idea of, of, the, of the walls and, and, and defensive units and all of those kinds of things, you see, it, it starts there. Because if, if you haven't been saved, if you don't have a relationship to Jesus, if you don't have a relationship to your Creator, if your sins haven't been forgiven, then you're still on the outside of this thing. And you're subject to the enemy. And you're subject to all that the enemy would bring and to the death and the destruction that he intends for you. You're still in your sin. And you see, your sin is a debt that you cannot pay. It, it doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank. See, when it talks about, when we think about that, sometimes we start to think about our own goodness. And, and we think, well, man, Jim Bob over here is really a good dude. In his bank account, it looks like he's got about $10 million. And Sue over here, she's really awesome too, and she does a lot of good stuff. I, I bet her bank account's got about $7 million in it. And then there's varying people, and then you get to try, and you're like, try's got about 500 bucks. <coughs> Tops. But you see... The, the debt is a billion dollars. The, the payment's a billion dollars, and it doesn't matter how good Jim Bob or Sue are. They don't have enough money to pay it. See, it doesn't work like that. It's not based in that kind of an economy. It's based in the, in, not in the economy of what you've done, but it's based in the economy of what's been done for you. We don't want to talk about, actually, what we deserve. But what we get is God's grace through this. And when we enter through this and we, we receive this because Jesus has went through this gate on our behalf, he became the sacrifice, then we can have the righteousness of Christ. We can be in right standing with a holy and perfect God. And when you do that, it's just the place where it all starts. It's the beginning. It's, it's the launch pad. And if you look at this, some of these gates are closer and some are farther away, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But the next gate that... that that comes up is, is, the, is the fish gate. And, and the fish gate was where, um, this is the place where, where the fishermen brought their catch to be sold there. And, and fishing and, and fish and Christianity and the Jewish culture have a lot, there's a lot enmeshed in there. Throughout the whole of, of, the, of the Bible, we see these, these, these uh, references to fishing. We see, you know, that there are 153 large fish caught in this net when, when Jesus comes back and is, is, is talking with Peter. We see that two fish fed 5,000 people. Fish, a fish became the symbol of Christianity. 
And that, that, that little thing that you see was a way that believers back in the day when they were persecuted and they were trying to talk and figure out if they were talking to another believer, one of them would make a mark this way and then the other one would make a mark that way, making a fish, and they would know that they were talking to a believer. So this is what Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The next gate that we kind of look at or the next part of the journey on our thing is to become fishers of men. Jesus said, look, I'm going to take you and I'm going to make you from a fisher of fish into a fisher of men. And you know, the majority of people that come to Christ are led to Christ by someone who is in their journey has been in Christ less than two years or less. It's that place where, where, where people see in their lives the big and obvious change, and it's the place, too, where, honestly, in our relationship to Jesus, there's a real honeymoon phase that comes and an excitement like any relationship does, and, and, and people who are generally have just come to know and understand about Jesus are, are often just, man, they're just, they're, 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 they can't wait to, to share the gospel with people. It's something that maybe if we've been in the faith for a while and, and we're not feeling that way, maybe we need to revisit that and revisit that gate even. And, and see how we're sitting with that. And, 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 and maybe, maybe that's something that needs rebuilt a little bit in our own lives. The next gate was the old gate, it was called. And you know, we're always looking for something new. We're always looking for the new thing. Churches, church uh, attenders, church strategy, they're looking for new stuff all the time. But you know what? We don't really need new things. What we need is some old things. We need to get back to some old things is what we really need to do. And, and, and Jeremiah 6.16 says that. He says, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look as for, and as for the ancient path where the good way is. And walk in it and find rest for your souls. We always want the new thing. We always want the new, most awesome, amazing, whatever, the new version of, of the, the next iPhone or update or whatever that looks like. But in this case, spiritually, we need to be recognizing that what we need is something old. We need to get back. We need to get back to, to some basic tenets and principles of life and things that God has laid out for us to, to give us abundant life. We need to become a people who who recognize that, you know what, I don't need a bunch of new stuff. I actually need some old stuff. The next gate is the valley gate. And, and, and it was, uh, it was it, we don't know really where this, which valley exactly this uh, opened up to. Could have been the valley of Hinnom. It possibly was the valley where Judas Iscariot took his own life. And, and, and Judas is an interesting study because when, when you start to look at Judas and you compare him with Peter, who, who also was a denier of Jesus, right? We, we see a contrast in how they dealt with that. Judas ultimately judges himself. He takes his own life. And he, and he does that in this way. But Peter ends up waiting and, and being restored by Jesus. It's a, it's a contrast of how that works out. But, but there's this valley, and the valley is a real point in the life of the believer. We, we, we move from, 
from, from our relationship, from coming into a relationship to Jesus, in, in, into, you know, really being excited in that honeymoon phase and fishing for men and, 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 and rec- a recognition of our, our need not for the new things but to get back to some things that are old and to begin to re- bring some of those things into our lives. But then some point in time, you're going to hit the valley. And maybe you're in the valley today. Maybe the valley has hit you. But the valley is, is this, this thing. It, it has this effect in our lives. It's this crucible. And, and it's this thing that, that brings up some of the things that need to be brought up in our lives. It, it, it begins to, to change us and to form us. I know several years ago, Anna and I, we were climbing Cloud Peak. And, and you know, we just felt like God ministered to us the whole time. It was a Sunday. And uh, we, we took off and we, we went. And we climbed Cloud Peak, which that's the, the view from the top there. And um, we just felt like God ministered to us the whole way. And one of the things that really was, was a huge thing was that, yeah, yeah the mountaintop's great. When, when we sit on the mountaintop, it's amazing. And when we sit there and we feel close to God and we, we look out there and we get that, that perspective and it's, it's awesome. And, and really in our lives, what we want to do is we want to just jump from mountaintop to mountaintop. But life is going down into the valley. You, you can't live on the top of a mountain. L- life doesn't really happen there. It's really a, a place that's, that's really rather harsh in, in and of itself. You've eventually, you, you, you can take that in and you can see that and you can, you can, you can revel in that, but you can't stay there. You got to go back down into the valley eventually. But you see all of the water and, and everything that you need, everything is going down. It's in that valley and everything that you really need to survive, it's, it's in that place. And so while the valley is not always an easy thing for us, God goes and he provides for us in the midst of that. And he makes a promise to us. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is the promise that, that God is saying that you, it's not that God, what we would like for God to say is that you don't have to go to the valley. I'll keep you out of the valley. But the valley is where life is. And even though the valley is hard and it's difficult, this is a God who says, I will go with you into that valley. And I will provide for you in that place. And I'll comfort you. And I'll walk with you. And I hope that for today, for those of you who have lost and are suffering and are in grief here, this, I hope that that's a comfort to you. That yes, you're in the valley, but God is with you. He hasn't forsaken you nor abandoned you. He knows exactly where you're at. And he has a plan to get you through that. <clears throat> the valley can last, last a long time. As a matter of fact, it's in there, it's, it's, it's kind of a, there's, a, there's a lot of room between the valley and the next gate. Sometimes the valley lasts longer than what we would like. And the valley, it, it tries us, it tests us though, you know. I, I know that when I, when, when I lost my daughter, that it was, it, it was just this thing where it was like, I've got two options here. I'm either going to quit or I'm going to let God be God. And that's not easy, and that's, that's, that's a really hard thing. But that's the truth of it at times. We're either going to quit, or we're going to allow God to be God. We're going to recognize that I don't always get it, and I don't always see it, but he does. 
And sometimes things are really hard, but God is working in the midst of this valley, in the midst of this pain, in the midst of our suffering, and things are coming to the top that need to be taken off. Things are coming out in those times and in those moments. It dredges up what needs to come to the top, and, 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 a, and a silversmith is always heating up the silver so that he can take the dross or the impurities off of the top. So God works in those difficult times, and I'm thankful that God is at work in those difficult times, that he's not just leaving them as, as just something that's just pain and suffering, but that he's actually working good through it. But you see, he's the only one who can. If we don't go it with him and we go it alone, then that valley won't produce good things in our lives. It'll only produce darkness and despair. Which will lead to anger and resentment. Which will block us off and will live in the past unable to move forward. The next gate is the, the dung gate. For a nice word. It's the dung gate. And, and it's, it's a refuse gate. And it's the furthest one from the temple. And, um, and, and after we get past this, it's interesting because then now the wall starts to take a turn and we start to move up from here. But, but sometimes the valley, like we talked about, it, it brings up some of the dross in our lives. It brings some of the things up that need to be gone, that, that need to, to go. Some of the refuse, see all of the refuse that needed to be burned and that were being taken out of the city were taken through this gate and out into this place and it burned and, and set on fire. There's a reality that God is purging some things in our lives and wants to purge things in our lives. There, there's impurities inside of me that God is wanting to work up and get rid of, to conform you and I, not to, not, not to shame us or defeat us, but to, to create something in us that is conforming itself to the image of Christ. Because a silversmith, or so the analogy goes, is that somebody asked him, well, how do you know when you're done getting the dross off the top? He said, when I can see my reflection in it. When I see myself in this silver, when it's so pure that it's a mirror, basically, this is what God is doing in our lives in this, this dung gate, this, this, this place where, where things need to go. Ezekiel 36, 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put it within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of, of flesh. <clears throat> this is the promise of God that we can be a new creation. That, that we don't have to live in the sinfulness and the brokenness of, of who we are. We can be made new. And this is a work that God wants to continue and wants to do in our lives. It does start to make the turn and it moves up from here. The next gate that we see is the fountain gate. And it was located near the pool of Siloam. And this was used for cleansing as, as people were coming and approaching the temple. They would hit this pool of Siloam and then the fountain gate was there, and they could approach the temple from here. And, and the, when the Holy Spirit is unhindered because of our sin, be, because we, we can grieve the Holy Spirit by what we allow to stay inside of our lives and kind of in our camp, 
But you see, when we purge that and when, when that valley brings that up and we allow God to take that dross off of our lives, then, then the Holy Spirit is, is now unhindered in our lives and is able to really move and to, to accomplish some of the things that he wants to accomplish in our lives. John 7, 38 and 39, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit. It's that idea that, that, that when we're right, and, and don't get me wrong, you get the Holy Spirit when you trust Jesus, but, but, but there's a work that needs to be done. We're still, we're still getting some of this stuff out so that the Holy Spirit can work in the way that he wants to. And so that fountain gate is that place where we've, we've done business with the Lord and the Holy Spirit now is unhindered, which takes us next to more water, which is the fountain gate. Or the, I'm sorry, it's, it's not the fountain gate, it's the water gate. Not the controversy that happened back in the 70s, but different water gate. Led to the Gihon Spring adjacent to the Kidron Valley. This is sanctification. This is, this is the work that God is doing in our lives. And, and even though it's not always easy or pleasant, he's washing us. It, it says, Ephesians 5, 26, that he might sanctify her. This is his bride, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. It, it's about the idea of, of allowing God to, and his word, to wash over us. To begin to repent by agreeing with his word and what he says. Recognizing that these old things are really what I need. Some of these ancient things are really what I need. It's not the modern thing I need. And allowing that to wash over us and cleanse us. Change us from the inside out. The next one is the horse gate. And, and the horse gate was, was near the king's stables, and this is where the men would ride out to war out of this gate. And it follows the water gate because as the word goes out and the sanctification is happening in our lives, then this is the place where we really meet with the spiritual battle that's all around us. And this is the place where, um, where we need to understand the reality of, of the spiritual in our lives, and, and that there's a battle that we're in, and that there's an enemy, and he wants to defeat us. Ultimately, too, it points to, to Jesus' return, Revelation 19, 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one else knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and by the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. <clears throat> this, uh, this is just the depiction of the, of the spiritual battle that we'll go through as believers. The next gate, the next three gates are really close together, and I think that's really interesting. The next gate is the, uh, 
It's the east gate. And it's located opposite of the Mount of Olives. And this is the gate that Jesus, it says, will return when he returns to earth, that he will come through the east gate. It's interesting because there are both Jewish and Muslim graves in front of the east gate. The Jewish graves are across the valley so that because they believe that somehow they might, when the Messiah comes and comes through the east gate, that they might receive maybe a little bit better of a resurrection. The Muslims are there to block and defile anybody or anything that would try to enter the east gate through that way. Two different graveyards with two different motives. Um, it's also called the Golden Gate. Zechariah 14.4, On that day his feet shall stand at the, on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. So this is the place where it says at the return of Christ that Jesus will come back to this place. I don't know if you know it or not, but if you go to a, a cemetery, most cemeteries that you go to, the graves are facing the east. The heads are, are facing the east. And the reason for that is, is because of the resurrection, is that we will look to the east as we are resurrected to new life. The next one is the, uh, is the inspection gate. The muster gate, it says there. This is the place where David would have met his troops for inspection. Sometimes you hear that, that, uh, that saying, uh, that didn't pass muster. Ever heard that? It's not mustered. It's not that, it's that doesn't say, does that pass the mustard? That's not it. That means you want some kind of another flavoring on your sandwich. Muster. And, and it means that it didn't pass inspection, basically. It's the Bema Seat of Christ. It's the place where believers, ultimately, that after Jesus' return, he comes back on a white horse, he comes through the east gate, and he judges the nations and the people. Even his own people will sit at what's called the Bema Seat of Christ. It's, it's not a place of judgment where your eternal destiny is at risk, but it is a place where our lives are reviewed and where God, Jesus, is going to go over our lives with us. And you'll be alone there. There won't be anybody but you and him to go over that with. And he's going to say, well, here's what I gave you. What did you do with it? How did you, how did you invest what I gave you? How did you invest your life? What did you live your life for? What was the most important things in your life? How did you love your, your neighbor, your brother? Your, how did you treat your family? How did you interact in your community? Did you care about your neighbor? Did you love your neighbor as yourself? Did you love me supremely? All of these things, we're going to look at that. 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So that's a place where 
It's not this thing that's meant to scare us. I think it's this thing that's meant to remind us, like, that, you know, you don't want to get to the other side of this just being like, whoo, you know, like, whoo, I got through it. I'm smoking a little bit, but I got through it. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I entrusted you with much. I entrusted you with little. And so now receive much. It's the final judgment. I mean, this is the reality. This is the harsh reality of, of our faith is that God is going to judge the nations and the world and the people of the world. And, and, and that your, your eternal destiny sits on whether you have a relationship to Jesus or not. And if you don't, if you've never done that, if you've never trusted Jesus, if you've never allowed this process to begin in your life, I want to encourage you today to trust Jesus, to believe on him, to believe that he's accomplished and he's done the work that he said, that he really came, that he's God, came from heaven to earth, to live a human life perfectly because we couldn't, and then to substitute that life for your life so that he might pay for the penalty of your sin and my sin, and that when we receive that and we believe on that, we're adopted into his family, we're, we're forgiven, and the righteousness that belongs to him is extended to us. This is the gospel. And it's that simple. And it's that hard at the same time. It's only hard because our pride doesn't allow it. Our pride wants us to, to, to own this or to buy it or to purchase it or to have it some other way. But it's really that simple. You simply ask. You simply just believe and ask. And like we said before, it's not just believing. Biblical faith isn't believing that this stool is really a good stool and, yep, I believe that would hold me up. Biblical faith is sitting and letting it hold you up to allowing it, to living into this, to walking in it. So Jesus is building his church. Try isn't building his church. You're not building his church. No, Jesus is building his church. The question is, are we going to join him in that building? It's an invitation to join him in what he wants to do in this world. Just taking simply, start putting some rocks up. Start building. Start working. Start doing some things. Lord, we just thank you. I thank you for your word. And I thank you that we're talking about something that has a lot more depth than just about building some walls somewhere. It's about our lives, and it's about what you've called us to. It's about who you are. It's about, it's about how things could be. So, Lord, we're just praying right now. I'm just praying for anybody in here who hasn't ever trusted you, who hasn't ever believed on you, that they would do business with you, that they would reckon with the reality of their sin and their need to be right before a holy and perfect God, and that they would recognize that, Jesus, you're the one. You're the, you're the way. You're the, you're the only way. You're the gate. And that if we, if we go through that gate with you, uh, that we will live eternally with you. So, uh, Lord, I'm just praying over that. And I pray, too, for this church body. I, I'm praying that I'm blessed to see all of the gifts that are being used and how they, uh, and, and I'm just praying, God, that you would continue to generate that in us, uh, continue to make us a church body that moves uh, the way that you've called us to move. Help us to not just be attenders, but to, but to really just enter in, to recognize that there is a, there is a cause here, that there is, a, there is a thing that we're doing that is greater than anything or any cause or any message that's out there. 
Lord, help us that we might, uh, that we might, w- might walk close with you and that the things that we do might be pleasing to you. And I'm praying over each and every one of us is that as we go out of here, that we would recognize that you're calling us uh, into the mission field, into uh, making a difference in the world around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.